Chapter 2 of Old Time Makers of Medicine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Marcetich. September 2009, Alexandria, Virginia. Old Time Makers of Medicine by James Joseph. Chapter 2 Part 2 of 3. In this same book, Chapter L, he treats of foreign bodies in the respiratory and upper digestive tracts. If there is anything in the larynx or the bronchial tubes, the attempt must be made to secure its ejection by the production of coughing or sneezing. If the foreign body can be seen, it should be grasped with a pincher's and removed. If it is in the esophagus, Aetius suggests that the patient should be made to swallow a sponge dipped in grease or a piece of fat meat, to either of which a string has been attached, in order that the foreign body may be caught and drawn out. If it seems preferable to carry the body on into the stomach, the swallowing of large mouthfuls of fresh bread or other such material is recommended. With regard to goiter, Aetius has some interesting details. He says that, quote, All tumors occurring in the throat region are called bronchoceles, for every tumor among the ancients was called a seal, and, though the name is common to them, they differ very much from one another. End quote. Some of them are fatty, some of them are pultaceous, some of them are cancerous, and some of them he calls honey tumors, because of a honey-like humor that they contain. Quote, Sometimes they are due to a local dilation of the blood vessels, and this is most frequently connected with parturition, apparently being due to the drawing of the breath, being prevented or repressed during the most violent pains of the patient. Such local dilation at this point of the veins is incurable, but there are also hard tumors like cirrus and malignant tumors, and those of great size. With the exception of these last, all the tumors of this region are easily cured, yielding either to surgery or to remedies. Surgery must be adapted to the special tumor, whether it be honey-like or fatty, or pultaceous. The prognosis of goiterous tumors is much better than might be expected, but evidently Aetius saw a number of the functional disturbances and enlargements of the thyroid gland, which are so variable in character as apparently to be quite amenable to treatment. Aetius's treatment of the subject of varicosities is quite complete in its suggestions. Quote, the term varices, end quote, he says, quote, is applied to dilated veins, which occur sometimes in connection with the testes and sometimes in the limbs. Operations on testicular varices patients do not readily consent to. Those on the limbs may be cured in several ways. First, simple section of the skin lying above the dilated vessel is made, and with the hook it is separated from the neighboring tissues and tied. After this, the dilated portion is removed and pressure applied by means of a bandage. The patient is ordered to remain quiet, 
but with the legs higher than the head. Some people prefer treatment by means of the cautery. Gurlt, in his History of Surgery, calls attention to the fact that two of our modern methods of treating varicose veins are thus discussed in Aetius, that by ligation and that by the cautery. The cautery was applied over a space the breadth of a finger at several points along the dilated veins. Aetius's chapters on obstetrics and gynecology are of special interest because, while we are prone to think that gynecology particularly is a comparatively modern development of surgery, this surgical authority of the Middle Ages treats it rather exhaustively. His sixteenth book is for the most part, 111 chapters of it, devoted to these two subjects. He has a number of interesting details in the first 36 chapters with regard to conception, pregnancy, labor, and lactation, which show how practical were the views of the physicians at the time. Gurlt has given us some details of his chapters on diseases of the breast. Aetius differentiates phagedenic and rodent ulcers and cancer. All of the ordinary forms of phagedenic ulcer yield to treatment, while malignant growths are rendered worse by them. Where ulcers are old, he suggests the removal of their thickened edges by the cautery, for this hastens cure and prevents hemorrhage. With regard to cancer, he quotes from Archigenes and Leonides. He says that these tumors are very frequent in women, and quite rare in men. Even at this time, cancer had been observed and recognized in the male breast. He emphasizes the fact that cancerous nodules become prominent and become attached to surrounding tissues. There are two forms, those with ulcer and those without. He describes the enlargement of the veins that follows, the actual varicosities, and the dusky or livid redness of the parts which seem to be soft, but are really very hard. He says that they are often complicated by very painful conditions, and that they cause enlargement of the glands and of the arms. The pain may be spread to the clavicle and the scapula, and he seems to think that it is the pain that causes the enlargement of the glands at a distance. His description of ulcerative cancer of the breast is very striking. He says that it erodes without cause, penetrating ever deeper and deeper, and cannot be stopped until it emits a secretion worse than the poison of wild beasts, copious and abominable to the smell. With these other symptoms, pains are present. This form of cancer is especially made worse by drugs and by all manner of manipulation. The paragraph from Leonides, quoted by Aetius, gives a description of operation for the cancer of the breast, in which he insists particularly on the extensive removal of tissue and the free use of the cautery. Quote, the cautery is used at first in order to prevent bleeding, but also because it helps to destroy the remains of diseased tissues. When the burning is deep, prognosis is much better. Even in cases where indurated tumors of the breast occur that might be removed without danger of bleeding, 
it is better to use the cautery freely, though the amputation of such a portion down to the healthy parts may suffice. End quote. Aetius quotes this with approval. Others before Aetius had suggested the connection between hypertrophy of the clitoris and certain exaggerated manifestations of the sexual instinct and the development of vicious sexual habits. As might be expected from this first great Christian physician and surgeon, he emphasizes this etiology for certain cases and outlines an operation for it. This operation had been suggested before, but Aetius goes into it in detail and describes just how the operation should be done, so as to secure complete amputation of the enlarged organ, yet without injury. He warns of the danger of removing more than just the structure itself, because this may give rise to ugly and bothersome scars. After the operation, a sponge wet with astringent wine should be applied, or cold water, especially if there is much tendency to bleeding, and afterwards a sponge with manna or frankincense scattered over it should be bound on. He treats of other pathological conditions of the female genitalia, varicose veins, growths of various kinds, hypertrophy of the portiovaginalis uteri, an operation for which is described, and of various tumors. He describes epithelemia very clearly, enumerates its most frequent locations in their order, lays down its bad prognosis, and hence the necessity for early operation with entire removal of the new growth whenever possible. He feared hemorrhage very much, however, and warns with regard to it, and evidently had had some very unfortunate experiences in the treatment of these conditions. Aetius seems to have had as thoroughly scientific an interest in certain phases of chemistry, apart from medicine, as any educated physician of the modern time might have. Mr. A. P. Laurie, in his Materials on the Printer's Craft, calls attention to the fact that the earliest reference to the use of drying oil for varnish is made by the physician Aetius. Aetius, or Aetios, to use for the nonce the Greek spelling of his name, which sometimes occurs in medical literature, and should be known, has been the subject of very varied estimation at different times. About the time of the Renaissance, he was one of the first of the early writers on medicine accorded the honor of printing, and then was reprinted many times, so that his estimation was very high. With the reawakening of clinical medicine in the 17th century, his reputation waxed again, and Boerhaave declared that the works of Aetius had as much importance for physicians as had the Pandects of Justinian for lawyers. This high estimation had survived almost from the time of the Renaissance, when Cornelius went so far as to say, quote, Believe me, that whoever is deeply desirous of studying things medical, if he would have the whole of Galen abbreviated 
and the whole of Orbasius extended, and the whole of Paulus, of Aegina, amplified, if he would have all the special remedies of the old physicians, as well in pharmacy as in surgery, boiled down to a summa for all affections, he will find it in Aetius. Naturally enough, this exaggerated estimation was followed by a reaction in which Aetius came to be valued at much less than he deserved. After all is taken into account in the vicissitudes of his fame, it is clear, however, that he is one of the most important links in the chain of medical tradition, and himself worthy to be classed among makers of medicine for his personal observations and efforts to pass on the teachings of the old to succeeding generations. Alexander of Tralles an even more striking example than the life and work of Aetius, as evidence for the encouragement and patronage of medicine in early Christian times, is to be found in the career of Alexander of Tralles, whose writings have been the subject of most careful attention in the Renaissance period and in our own, and who must be considered one of the great independent thinkers in medicine. While it is usually assumed that whatever there was of medical writing during the Middle Ages was mere copying and compilation, here at last is a man who could not only judiciously select, but who could critically estimate the value of medical opinions and procedure, and weighing them by his own experience and observation, turn out work that was valuable for all succeeding generations. The modern German school of medical historians have agreed in declaring him an independent thinker and physician, who represents a distinct link in medical tradition. He came of a distinguished family, in which the following of medicine as a profession might be looked upon as hereditary. His father was a physician, and it is probable that there were physicians in preceding generations, and one of his brothers, Dioscoros, was also a successful physician. Altogether, four of his brothers reached such distinction in their life work that their names have come down to us through nearly 1,500 years. The eldest of them was Anthemios, the builder of the great church of Santa Sophia in Constantinople. As this is one of the world's great churches, and still stands for the admiration of men a millennium and a half after its completion, it is easy to understand that Anthemios' reputation is well-founded. A second brother was Metrodoros, a distinguished grammarian and teacher, especially of the youthful nobility of Byzantium, as it was then called, or Constantinople, as we have come to call it. A third brother was a prominent jurist, also in Constantinople. The fourth brother, Dioscoros, like Alexander, a physician, remained in his birthplace, Tralles, and acquired there a great practice. It was with his father at Tralles that Alexander received his early medical training, 
The father of a friend and colleague, Cosmas, who later dedicated a book to Alexander, was also his teacher, while he was in his native city. As a young man, Alexander undertook extensive travels, which led him into Italy, Gaul, Spain, and Africa, everywhere gathering medical knowledge and medical experience. Then he settled down at Rome, probably in an official position, and practiced medicine successfully until a very old age. He was probably eighty years of age when, sometime during the first decade of the seventh century, he died. Pushman, who has made a special study of Alexander's life and work, suggests that, since some of his books have the form of academic lectures, he was probably a teacher of medicine at Rome. As might be expected, from what we know of the relations of the rest of the family to the nobility of the time, it is easy to understand, especially in connection with hints in Alexander's favorite modes of therapeutics, that costliness of remedies made no difference to his patients, that he must have had the treatment of some of the wealthiest families in Rome. His principal work is a treatise on the pathology and therapeutics of internal diseases, in twelve books. The first eleven books were evidently material gathered for lectures or teaching of some kind. The twelfth book, in which considerable use of Aetius's writings is made, was written, according to Pushman, toward the end of Alexander's life, and was meant to contain supplementary matter, comprising especially his views gathered from observation as to the pathology of internal diseases. A shorter treatise of Alexander is with regard to intestinal parasites. There are many printed editions of these books, and many manuscript copies are in existence. Alexander was often quoted during the Middle Ages and in recent years, with the growth of our knowledge of medical history, he has come to be a favorite subject of study. End of part two of three.